this. We're going through the most, probably the most controversial text in all of Scripture in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're in this study called Crossover. We're in this study called Crossover. We're going through the life of Abraham. Uh, we're expositing. We're digging into the Scripture and finding out what it means uh, in this life of Abraham, in this Genesis text from Genesis 12 to uh, 24, I believe it is. And man, Abraham, uh, he's considered the father of faith. He's considered the father of faith. And man, that, that's, that's quite a title. <laughs> that's quite a title. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, uh, for God to come and save the world from our sin, um, he had to come down. He had to come down and save us. And he had to do it by sending himself in Jesus Christ. He had to do that. That's how he was going to save the world. But to be born into the world, you've got to start a lineage you got to start a line of descendants to, to get to that birth. And man, Abraham is the first in that line. Abraham is the first in that line. And that makes Abraham the first Hebrew. Abraham is the first Jewish person. A Jewish person is Jewish because they're called. That was, that's what makes them Jewish. They are a called people. Abraham is the first called person in this lineage uh, to Jesus Christ, this line of descendants. And that word uh, Hebrew, it literally, it literally means to cross over, to travel or, or to traverse. It means to cross over. And we've been looking the past several weeks about what it means to cross over in our lives by going through these scriptures. We're seeing Abraham cross over. First, we see how God crosses over into Abraham's life and he reveals himself in Abraham's life. And then we're seeing how it impacts Abraham, this new faith that he has, that he's been called to. Man, being called from an old identity to a new identity, crossing over from an old self to a new self, old ways of thinking to new ways of thinking. Man, an old life to a new life. He's crossing over week after week as we go through this text. And man, we've been crossing over with Abraham. With Abraham. And last week, uh, man, we learned uh, about the heart of God. We learned about the heart of God and this merciful and compassionate heart of love. A merciful and compassionate heart of love. And he, he wants to cultivate this in our hearts. This mercifulness and this compassion and this love. He wants to cultivate that in our hearts. But man, today, today we get a scripture that seems completely contradictory to what we saw last week. Completely contradictory to this compassion and, and this love and this mercifulness. On the surface, man, today's text... Last week, it was just this text of compassion and love. Today, it's this text of judgment. It's this text of, of judgment uh, uh, today. And that, that's the question of our age. It's the question of our age. How can a God of love be a God of judgment? That's what everybody's asking. How can a God of love be a God of judgment? Are they mutually exclusive? Are they mutually exclusive? Can they coexist? Can love and judgment coexist? Man, they are. They can coexist. They do coexist. They are not exclusive to each other. Man, they are, they are beautiful together. This love and this judgment. They're beautiful together. Man, last night my wife and I, we went to, we went to see an orchestra. <laughs> 
a, 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 this hybrid of like a Broadway orchestra thing. I'm not an orchestra guy. Like I've never liked orchestras. So, but we were invited by a family in the church, and uh, man, I was looking forward to it because one of the kids, 13-year-old Charlie, he was playing his violin in the orchestra. Did a great job. Great job, Charlie. Um, my first really real orchestra, and I was I was like really impressed. I was surprised by it. I actually liked it. <laughs> I was like, man, am I getting old? <laughs> I kind of like this orchestra thing. This is like really nice. The it's just it's beautiful. It sounds wonderful. Um, but man, like I was sitting there, and um, I just couldn't help but think, you know, uh, you have all these um, these wonderful instruments like violins and oboes, and I, I don't know what else. I'm not like a big instrument music guy, but they all have like these amazing distinct sounds, right? And they're beautiful apart from each other, man. But then when you get all the instruments together, right, it is just, it's, it's, it's astoundingly beautiful. All of these sounds from these instruments just coming together and meshing just so perfectly and so well, and, and it's just beautiful. All these instruments that are different, they're different, and they make a different sound, and yet they, they coexist so beautifully, and they just come through uh, together to create this, really just this, this amazing artistic uh, work of sound. That's the only way that I can really put it together, is this amazing artistic work of sound. Guys, that, that's what love and judgment is. If we really look closely at what the Bible says, it's, this, it's a beautiful thing. They coexist. And when they come together, it really is, it's, it, we see the glory of God. Man, we see the glory of God in both love and justice. And man, you know, if you're teetering back and forth, man, I don't know if God, if God is love, I don't know if he's judgment or if he's, he's all judgment. I don't know if he's love. I, I don't see how they coexist. I don't see how they come together, man. I want you to leave here today settled on the matter. I want you to leave here today settled on the matter. Because if we don't get this right, we're not going to get a lot of other things about the gospel and about God right. And that's dangerous. But if we get this right, if we get this right, we're going to get so much about Jesus, so much about God, right? So I want you to leave here settled with this. I'm confident, I'm confident that his justice, his judgment, when looked at biblically and faithfully, is something that we're going to glorify him for. Nothing to be afraid of. We shouldn't be afraid of this love and this judgment from God, but it's something that we're going to glorify him for. Let's get to the text. We're in Genesis 19. Genesis 19, kind of a long chapter. We're going we're gonna to get through it. We're going to start with verses 1 through 8. In the scripture, it says this. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, 
So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Man, you know, last week we, we learned a, a lot about um, the things that were happening in Sodom and, and Gomorrah and these, these cities, and it wasn't good. Um, it wasn't good uh, what was happening in these cities, and we get a little bit of it here in this text. You know, the, 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 these angels, the messengers of the Lord, they didn't want it, they, they were going to stay in the town square. They want, that's where they wanted to sleep, and Lot's just like, no, don't do that. Well, it doesn't say in the scripture, but we know that he didn't want him to, them to do that because bad things happen in the town square at night. Bad things happen in the town square at night. And, you know, some of the things we, la we learned last week, you know, when strangers and travelers like this who came into the city, they would be robbed, they'd be stripped, they'd be held captive uh, within the city, and they would wander the streets slowly starving to death to the amusement of the citizens. That's something that happened in Sodom and, and these cities in Canaan. Man, they worshipped idols. They worshipped idols and they would sacrifice their children to these idols. They would sacrifice their children and then, and then they, would, uh, they, they, would, they would put the bodies of their children into the walls of their home for good luck. That's what they did in Sodom. They did terrible things. Strangers and guests that come to the town, they would, they, would stretch their, they would stretch them and they would cut their arms off or their legs. People in battle, they would cut off their legs and one arm so they could shake the other arm and mocking them. They could shake their hand mocking them. These are just some of the things that was happening in Sodom, and we get a little bit of a taste of it here in the scripture. There was rampant sexual sin in Sodom and in these cities. Rampant sexual sin, there was, there, there was, there was just all kinds of things. Cultic prostitution and adultery and homosexuality and pedastry and bestiality and incest. There were all these things happening in Sodom. All these things converging in this pot. And, and it was boiling. And here in the text, we see that the, the men, the boys, they wanted to have sex with these three men in Lot's house. And Lot, he offers his daughters up. He offers his daughters up instead to these men of the town. In Ezekiel 16, 9, 16, 49 through 50, we get a little bit of how God sees all this that's happening. It says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. And yet they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. 
And therefore I did away with them, as you have seen. You know, the Sodomites probably intellectually believed how they lived mattered. They probably intellectually in their minds, they believed how, their, how they lived mattered. And yet when the rubber met the road, man, they just didn't live like it. They didn't live like it. They didn't live like it matters. You know, the behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah, it probably stirs up some kind of grief or anger in you. And that's okay. That's okay. Let's uh, continue in the text. And Scripture says this, starting in verse 9. And we'll read, really, the rest of the way through. It says, But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to, the break, to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. These are the messengers of the Lord. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, to be, to be joking. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and, and his two daughters by the hands, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor, also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the grounds. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the lands of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And then you go in and you lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. We see, you know, we, we see uh, the human depravity in the scripture. And we see incest there with the daughters laying with their father because they want to have children. But what we see here is, is, is God's judgment. We see his judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the cities of the lands. And, you know, God's judgment as we see it in the Bible, it really collides with our culture, does it not? You're probably sitting here pretty uncomfortable by this. God's judgment, it collides with culture. It does not mix with our culture. It's like water and vinegar. And the basic premise of our modern culture is, if God is love, if he is love, how can he be a God of judgment? How can he do this? It's just not possible to us in our culture. And to understand God's nature, though, we can look at ourselves we can look at ourselves to understand God's nature as, as a human race. Do we not have a strong passion for justice? Do we not? We have a strong passion for justice. Why? Why do we have this strong passion for justice? Well, it's because the Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. God has built in us characteristics of himself. He has put these things in us. He has put his imprint on us. Love. God is love. Creativity. Man, God is a creative God. He has put that imprint in us. We are creative people. Intelligence. Morality. There's a moral compass inside of us, even though it's broken. We all have this moral compass inside. That's God's imprint on us. Man, we have emotion. God's emotional. We have emotion, compassion. We have mercy. We have grace. And we have a desire for justice. It's because God is a God of justice. We can see it in ourselves. That's why we are the way that we are. But the problem is that sin has distorted that image. 
Sin has broken that image in our lives. This image of justice. This image of justice, it's distorted. What's distorted is how we perceive the balance of love and judgment. It's, it's distorted. And the way we, that we see that practically around us, in ourselves, or in people. You know, some people are, are offended by and can't grasp a God of judgment and justice. They just can't grasp that. But then there's other people, they can't grasp a God of love. They cannot grasp how God could go to the cross. How God could die because he loves us. They can't grasp that. They can't put the two together. They can't grasp that. You know, there's people, there's people who are angry because God doesn't seem to be doing anything about the evil in the world. It might be you here. You might be angry. It doesn't seem like God is doing anything in the world about the evil that's happening. But those are the people that are usually the first to be angry when they see him exact judgment like what we're seeing here. They're the first people to be angry when he does exact judgment. Guys, we have a strong passion for justice when it comes to other people and their wrongdoing, <laughs> right? But when it comes to justice on ourselves, we are far more lenient on ourselves. Are we not? We sure are. Man, when it comes to justice on others, yeah, go get them. Man, judge him. Punish him. When we do wrong, man, we're a lot more lenient on ourselves. And that's not right. I see it in my kids already. I have a four-year-old and two-year-old daughter. You may have seen them running around and just destroying everything <laughs> in this little church that we have here. Man, they're so good at this. They're so good at this. My oldest daughter wants justice on her little sister. She did this. She's so wrong. She scratched me. Man, she hit me in the face. Punish her. But when Mackenzie does wrong, no. I didn't do anything. Be nice to me, Dad. Be nice to me, Mom. But we do that as adults. We do that as adults because sin has distorted the image of justice in our hearts. We do that as adults. Man, sin causes us to be self-righteous. It causes us to be self-righteous and forgiving of ourselves, but harsh on others. Harsh on others. We see it in our marriages. Man, this is something Steffi and I, we struggle with it. We're not perfect. My wife and I, we can be harsh on each other. Too harsh too harsh on each other. Guys, this is why it's hard to swallow this text for ourselves. When we read a text like this in Genesis, it's hard to swallow when we think about ourselves, but for others, yes. For others, yes. We get it for others, but not so much for ourselves. How else does this look practically in our lives? You know, before I came to Christ, I, I, I experienced some of this, what, what, we're, what we're talking about, how it looks practically. You know, I used to be a non-believing person in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know about this. You know, for, for, for the kind of the average non-believing person, 
that we, that we usually fall into one of two categories. And you may, you may, you may, you, you may relate to this. These two categories, man, if I'm feeling guilt because of wrongdoing in my life, if you're not a believer and you feel this guilt, you're not sure why you feel guilty, but you feel this guilt because of wrongdoing in my life, if God exists, I don't know if he exists, but if he exists, we, we sway towards him being pure love and no judgment. We recognize this guilt. We recognize that I'm doing wrong. And if God exists, we sway more towards him being pure love and no judgment. And this is really to subconsciously make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Man, God is pure love, you know. It's all good. What I did, it might be wrong, but God loves me, you know. It doesn't really matter because God loves me. We're super passive. That category is super passive and enabling enabling ourselves, enabling people. And before I knew Christ, that's the category I fell into. That's the category that I fell into. This other category, man, this other category, if I have a hyper self-righteous view of myself, I don't do anything wrong. I don't do anything wrong. No, I'm, I'm perfect. I'm this view of myself. I don't do anything wrong. And you know, if God exists, I don't know if he exists, but if he exists, we sway towards him being pure judgment, especially on everybody but me. There's that category. And this is to subconsciously make us feel better about ourselves. To make us feel better about ourselves. And those people are super harsh, merciless on people. They're super harsh and unforgiving and merciless on people. Man, these are dangerous, these two categories. When we don't allow love and judgment to coexist, they're dangerous, they're unhealthy, and they're oppressive places to be mentally and emotionally and spiritually. They damage relationships. Those aren't good places to be. So society says, if God is a God of love, if God is a God of love, then he would love and forgive everybody no matter what. Do you hear those things in society? You hear those statements? If he's a God of love, he would just forgive everybody automatically no matter what, and he would love. But this is what the Bible makes clear. The Bible makes clear that God doesn't judge because he doesn't love. He judges because he loves. He judges because he loves. His judgment comes from love. It comes from love. In the Bible, God is both love and judgment. He's both. He's not one or the other. Man, he is both. He is both love and judgment. God's love and judgment, they do coexist. They're not mutually exclusive from each other. Each one requires the other. Love requires judgment. Judgment requires love. You can't have one and not the other. You cannot have one and not the other. The Bible says that God's wrath, this wrath that we see here in Sodom, in this text, this wrath, man, it's harsh. <laughs> Man, it's harsh. But the Bible says that God's wrath, it flows from His love. 
It flows from His love because He delights in His creation. He delights in His creation and these people that He's created. We forget that God is personal. God is a personal God. He has a great aching love for His creation and His people. Being made in the image that we've talked about, being made in the image of God, it gives us inherent dignity and worth and value. And sin has corrupted that and it pollutes the image. God is grieved by this. He's angry. He is angry by this. This author, Becky, Becky Pipper, there on the screen in her book, uh, Hope Has Its Reasons, she says something that really got me. It's, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. That's not what this is in this Genesis text. It's not a cranky explosion. She says, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but a settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. That he loves with his whole being. Think about this. Think about this. Man, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath and anger. Are we not? All loving persons, man, if you love somebody and you see somebody just ruining themselves, don't you get angry? I'm experiencing that in my extended family. People just ruining, destroying themselves. I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry about it. You get angry. If you don't love somebody, if you don't love somebody, you're not going to get that angry. Because you don't have any skin in the game. You don't have any skin in the game. Why are you going to get so angry? God has skin in the game. God has skin in the game, man. He created you. He created us. He created the world. He gave everything that he has. This world and us as people, we are everything to him. God has skin in the game. He has invested everything into us. Everything into us. You could ask, how could God exact divine justice on people in the world? How could he not? How could he not? Would he be worthy of worship if he didn't? Would he be worthy of worship? If he turned his face, if he turned his face and ignored everything happening, he would not be worthy of worship. You know, you could ask, God could have relented and given them time. Guys, he has. You don't see it in this text, but remember, back in Genesis 14, this is the same Sodom whose king God saved. God saved Sodom. Years ago, in Genesis 14, he saved Sodom. He saved the king of Sodom. He was merciful on Sodom. Remember, through Abraham, Abraham went to war against Kedorlamer. And through Abraham, God saved Sodom. God was merciless. He was giving them time. Man, he was giving them grace and showing them grace. But by the time we get to Genesis 19, enough is enough. Enough is enough, man. This has to happen. This has to happen. We can't have love without judgment, and you can't have judgment without love. You cannot do it. 
Judgment without love is cold and callous. Judgment without love is cold and callous. And we see that in our cancel culture. We learned last week. Y'all remember that we're here last week. Cancel culture. We live in a culture now where if you do something wrong, pull the book off the shelf, cancel the show, shame him on social media, pretend he doesn't exist, socially excommunicate them. That's our cancel culture. It's cold and it's callous. And it's not healthy reconciliation for our lives, for the world. It's cold and it's callous. Scripture is clear that God is not cold and callous. He is not cold and callous. We wouldn't want to live in a world where God is cold and callous. Man, that would be a terrible thing. If he was cold and callous, we would not want to live here. Love without judgment is enabling. It's enabling. We see that in our culture where there's a widespread belief that there's no moral absolutes. What's moral to you may not be moral to him and whatever you think is good for you and hey, it's all good, just do it. Whatever it is that you want to do, it might, you know, I don't know if it's wrong because there's no moral absolutes. Just do whatever you want to do. Man, that, that's, that's love without judgment. That's enabling and it's damaging. And scripture is clear that God is not enabling. God is not enabling. We wouldn't want to live in a world where God is strictly enabling. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to live in that world where he's enabling. So how do we strike this balance? How do, how do the two come together, really? Man, how do the two come together? How do they tie together? They tie together on the cross. They tie together in the gospel. They tie together on the cross. Listen, sin has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. Wrongs, you look in our society, they always have to be made right. They always have to be made right. Sin always has a penalty. When somebody is wronged, somebody always has to absorb the costs. The cost just doesn't disappear out of thin air and just go away and doesn't fall on somebody. Somebody always has to absorb the cost. Either the victim absorbs the cost or the offender absorbs the cost. It has to happen. It has to happen. Guilt can't be dealt with unless someone pays. There's no other, there's no other way. Guilt has to be dealt with can't be dealt with unless someone pays. We wouldn't want to live in a world where wrongs weren't paid for. We wouldn't want that. And listen, evil. We see all this evil in the world and maybe in our lives. And man, evil, it's not this force that floats around wreaking havoc in the world. It's not like this invisible orb and it's just like just hitting people and just destroying things. That's not what evil is. It's not this invisible force wreaking havoc, man. Evil, it's in us. It's in us. It's in our hearts. It's inside of us. It's, it's, it's in our hearts. That's what the Bible says. The world won't acknowledge that. The world won't acknowledge that. They think evil is just this thing that's just out there and you can't figure it out. The Bible says it's in us. It's in our hearts. We're the problem. And because Evil and injustice come from within all of us. God must his direct his wrath on us. Because evil is in us. 
He must direct his wrath on us. We must pay the cost. But man, God loves us, right? He has to judge, but he loves us. He loves us. He doesn't want to destroy us. He doesn't want to. So if he doesn't direct his wrath on us, how can payment be secured? How can it be secured? He turns his wrath upon himself. That's the answer. He turns his wrath upon himself. He absorbs the cost. He takes the penalty upon himself. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's love and that's judgment. That's what the cross is. The cross is where love and judgment intersect. The cross is God's wrath on humanity. And it's his love and it's his grace to humanity. It's love and it's justice. It's his grace freely offered to us. He hates sin and evil so much that he had to die for it, but he loves us so much that he wanted to die for us. That he wanted to die for us. Man, belief in a God of pure judgment who accepts nobody, that is a terrible thing. Oh, that's terrible. But man, belief in a God of pure love who accepts everyone and judges no one, that's a terrible thing. But this cross, man, this cross, belief in a God of both love and judgment who accepts us despite our sin, that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing that the world wants. The world is looking for it. The world is looking for it. And his acceptance comes through faith in the perfect atoning sacrifice of Jesus. It's all at the cross. It's all at the cross. Man, so how do we respond? How do we respond to this? How do we respond to, to, to this love and this judgment? Well, you know, we're, we're in this sermon series called Crossover. We're looking about how, how Abraham crosses over in his life. Each, each text, and we're learning about how we cross over. How do we cross over in this text? I mean, when you look at Lot and, and, and his family in this text, they don't take God seriously. Do they not? They actually take Sodom more seriously than they take God seriously. We saw in the text, the son-in-law, he, he thinks that Lot's joking. He doesn't take him seriously. He thinks, Lot, he's, he thinks Lot is jesting, it said. Lot, he hesitates to respond to the messengers. There's just this, like, passivity, this apathy. But they're just, they're just not taking this seriously. And immediately after the destruction, we see the Lot's daughters, they, they basically, they rape their dad. That's the, that's the honest truth about it. They basically rape their dad. They're not taking this seriously. They have been in Sodom for years, but now Sodom is in them. Sodom is inside of them now. They're not even in Sodom anymore, but Sodom is following them. They've left Sodom now, and Sodom is it's in them. It's, it's following them. It's in their hearts. They're, they're not taking this seriously. Guys, crossing over, it's just not being comfortable it's not being comfortable with the world. It's not being comfortable with the world around us. It's not com being comfortable with the things that we're seeing in the world. 
That's what crossing over is for us. Man, how we live matters. It matters. But let me tell you something, man. We, we shouldn't laugh at Sodom. You know, we, we, could, we could easily kind of read this text and be like, oh, what a bunch of idiots. What is Sodom thinking? You know, we could get all smug and prideful and think we're, we're great and awesome. You know, I do some things wrong, but I'm not like them. Right? I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Man, we should be looking at this humbly. We should be looking at this humbly. We shouldn't laugh at Sodom, but really we should direct our eyes to first ourselves at our own lives. And man, where am I falling short? What, what sin in my life am I just not taking seriously in my life? And recognize that God has paid the price for that sin. Jesus has died on the cross for me, for that sin. But it doesn't enable me to just stay as I am. He gives me power to change. The gospel gives me power to transform. Where do I need to change? Where do I need to transform in my life? Because how I live matters. It could be in your marriage, man. It could be in your relationships, your friendships. It could be at work. It could be here in the church. It could be so many things. Crossing over, it's choosing the cross every day. It's every day I wake up, man, I turn my face to the cross. I turn my face to Jesus, and I'm not looking back. I'm not looking back like Lot's wife. She missed it. She barely left the, the, the border of Sodom, and she was already looking back. She missed it. Man, crossing over is looking ahead to the cross and, and not looking back like Lot's wife. Man, crossing over is taking God's anger over sin seriously, but also taking his immense love to heart. And, and that we see that these two things perfectly on the cross, and the cross is for you. Man, the cross is for me. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Man, does the cross make sense? Does this love and this judgment make sense? Settle it now. Settle it now.